Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. While the Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal, 14% of Americans think that some groups of people are simply inferior to others. We assume that the Constitution and the rule of law are essential governing principles. Yet 34% of Americans say it is more important to follow the will of the people today than the constitutional principles on which the rule of law stands. 31% of Americans agree that having a strong leader who does not have to bother with Congress and bother with elections is a good way to govern the United States. And believe it or not, 13% of Americans say we should just junk the Bill of Rights and let the president limit the voice and vote of opposition parties if the country is threatened in any way. We have had the president of the United States stand in front of the, the entire nation and appeal to his most violent followers. We've had him claim that his opponent was looking to steal the upcoming election, and he refused to commit to a peaceful transition of power. It feels like we're heading into a fascist or authoritarian abyss. At the presidential debate, we saw an attack on our system of governing. We saw an attack on civility. We saw an attack on democratic norms, which goes along with the last four years of constant attack on the free press. How did this happen? How did we, America, get to this point? Well, to help us understand that is Matthew McWilliams. Matthew is the author of a new book on fascism. 12 Lessons from American History. I'm really, really thrilled and really grateful to have Matthew McWilliams here. And and Matthew's a scholar, uh, a recognized expert on authoritarianism. He was the first researcher to use survey research to establish a link between Trump's core supporters and authoritarianism. His work has been reprinted or referenced by leading media around the world, including CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, CBS, Washington Post, Newsweek, NPR. He's spoken to more than 50 members of Congress and leaders from across Europe about the rise of authoritarianism. And I'm really happy to have you on, Matthew. Thanks for being here. Oh, David, thank you so much. And I just wanted to say, give you a shout out to your tribute of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I thought that was really fitting and, and wonderful uh, on your last podcast. And uh, you're certainly right. We are living in interesting times. I think that's a old Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. And <laughs> we certainly are living in them right now. <laughs> yeah, th- that's for sure. Your book, is it out today, yesterday? Yesterday, uh, it's on fascism, 12 lessons from American history. And it's uh, the publication date was yesterday. I've read a lot of really good books, and I've read a lot of really informative books, but this book falls into the really important book category. Thank you. And it's important because this is a manual, like the manual you find in your new car, you know, how to operate the car and, you know, how to recognize if things are going wrong in the car and, and, and what to do. That's what this is. I couldn't think of a book being more timely, though you've been talking about this for a very long time, right? Yes. 
it really, uh, for me, started, I, I was studying authoritarianism as part of my scholarly work, which was always seen as an academic dead end because people said there is no authoritarianism in the world. Why would you study this? That's something that was defeated and is no longer around. But I, I found the literature on authoritarianism fascinating. And also, there were some works that were done, uh, Authoritarianism and Polarization in American Politics by Mark Hetherington and Jonathan Weiler. They were just really stunning explanations of what was happening in the late 80s through the early 2000s in American politics. So I was studying it, and uh, Trump was running for president in 2015, and I said all of his rhetoric is rhetoric that, not all of it, but large parts of it, rhetoric that's geared to activate American authoritarianism. And the question, research question was, did it? And uh, the way you answer that, uh, one way to answer it is to put a poll in the field. So I put a large M, a 2,000 sample survey in the field in October of 2015. And I remember when the data came back, it was late at night, I just finished focus groups. Uh, in Minnesota, and the data came in, and you know I'm a little bit of a nerd, uh, and I sat, I crunched the data, and I the results were just stunning. You know, the hypothesis was American authoritarians were rising to Trump's siren call, and the results were that yes, American authoritarians were a significant part, uh, or authoritarianism was one of the key variables. Uh, indicating support for Trump in the Republican primary. And it wasn't true for any other of the candidates running at that time. It was just Trump. And that led me to the 2016 early article, uh, early in 2016 in Politico, saying he has activated authoritarianism, uh, the authoritarian base in this country. Uh, They are rallying to him. And it can lead him all the way to the presidency. What I found in the book, the new book on fascism, 12 Lessons from American History, what I found interesting is a a lot of it's data-driven. You know, this isn't your opinion. This is data-driven. And there's something that you refer to. It's a tool that you use uh, called the Index of American Authoritarian Attitudes. Yeah. What is that? Well, that is a series of questions that are asked. And, you know, these are really basic polling questions that are asked on surveys all over the place. And uh, what we found is that authoritarians, and these are people we define through four polling questions. We don't ask you, are you authoritarian or not? That would be uh, a little tautological. But we have four questions we ask uh, people to define if they're authoritarian or not. And then we find that these people agree more than others statistically, with these sets of questions. First, uh, authoritarian, American authoritarians are more likely to agree that our country should be governed by a strong leader who doesn't have to bother with Congress or elections. That's the question. And it's not a question I just made up. It's actually a question that's on the World Values Survey that goes out once every five years across the world to gauge support for democracy. American authoritarians say, hey, they're more likely to agree the country should be governed by a strong leader who doesn't have to bother with Congress or elections. They're more likely to support limiting the freedom of the press. They're more likely to agree that the media is an enemy of the people. And this, very important for this upcoming election, 
they're more likely to think that the president should have the power to limit the voice and vote of opposition parties. And they're also more likely to believe that those who disagree with them, so if you disagree with me, which means you disagree with Trump, that if you disagree, you are a threat to the country, which to me is a big red flag for what happens, is possible to happen during the interregnum between the vote on November 3rd and the inauguration in January. This is data-driven, and David, I think another thing that's important in each one of the stories I go back and pull out data, elevate data that describe how people are thinking today about some of the stories from American history. You know, so how do people feel about Japanese internment when it happened? Or today, how do they think about deep state conspiracies? The foundation of the whole book really is data in history. Right. One of the interesting things, well, first, I was very surprised by the the percentages of people who had these authoritarian tendencies in America. Were you surprised? So the authoritarianism, the identification of it, comes from uh, four questions. And they're childbearing questions. And, you know, no one in the academy or in research says they're perfect. They approximate to someone's disposition towards authoritarianism. But they're really good approximators of it because they... The people who score high on the authoritarian scale are more likely to say, you know, the country should be governed by a strong leader. I don't like diversity. I don't like uh, increasing religious uh, and racial diversity in the country. But the percentages of people really didn't surprise me because this has been known in polling circles, at least academic polling circles, for decades. The survey that I did, or I've done a series of surveys, but you know, approximately 18% of Americans are highly disposed to authoritarianism. And then another 23% or so, you know, there's a margin of error and everything that are just one step below them on the authoritarian scale. That's about four in 10 Americans uh, that favor authority, obedience, uniformity over freedom, independence, and diversity. And if you go back, and I was Looking back into 1992, the national election uh, studies, and from 92, I think it was 92 or 94 on, these questions have been asked on and off and have found basically the same numbers, like the 2004 NES found almost the exact same numbers. So it's a very stable construct in American society. You know, the question is, so then you say, why don't we have authoritarianism running rampant through this country all the time. And, I, and you know, partially you see it through history, which is what the book's about, but also it's all about activation. Are authoritarians activated? Which means, are they fearful? What President Trump has done is activate them through his rhetoric. And you've written and laid out that fear is what activates. And these authoritarian-leaning Americans, you know, they're willing to trade their civil liberties for for lack of a better term, strongman solutions, right? For law and order. They seem more eager or more willing to strip those civil liberties from those who they refer to or think of as the other. That's the key. They will junk civil liberties for security. And that junking, that willingness to throw it overboard comes from fear. And that fear activates their authoritarianism And what they desire is order, 
obedience, and the word that is so dangerous, uniformity. And uniformity means groupiness. They want their group to be on top, and they want everyone to conform to their group's uh, set of uh, instructions. And that leads to us versus them. Uh, you know, we're in a very diverse country, a very strong, wonderful, diverse country. And if you say our way or the highway, you're just creating an us versus them dynamic. And it's very dangerous, basically. You know, on the flip side is freedom, independence, and diversity. And really what the founders talked about was turning that diversity into unity. Diversity is strong. E pluribus unum, out of uh, one out of many. There's a real difference here in worldviews is what it comes down to. The authoritarian worldview, when activated, leads to, as we know from history, many bad places. Sure. There was a, a brilliant writer, Eric Fromm, who wrote a great book, too, Escape from Freedom, 1941. It's one of the seminal books on political psychology. And the whole notion of escaping from freedom, authoritarians, when they're activated, they choose to escape from freedom to security and they want to obey and they do. One of the things you, you write about, uh, and I've seen it in other books and treatments of authoritarianism, is the concept of American exceptionalism. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the relationship between American exceptionalism and authoritarianism? The book is about reckoning with our history. And there's this fairy tale myth that we are an exceptional people. And that's the fairy tale we tell ourselves. I mean, I, I learned it growing up in school, you know, that we are exceptional people. And, and, and this myth persuades us that we are uniquely immune from all sorts of different things, including the activation of authoritarianism. And it also allows us to justify our history as an anomaly, parts of our history as an anomaly. And Trump is really focusing on this now. The 1776 commission he's come up with is an attempt to whitewash a sanitized version of American history. And the problem with that is to really attain a more perfect union and live up to our democratic ideals. That's something we struggle with, right? We have to remove our blinders and examine our history, examine it uh, in a realistic way because we're not perfect. And, you know, the founders knew this. Madison's warning, James Madison, Federalist 63, his warning about the infection of the violent passions. That's authoritarianism, stoked by the artful misrepresentations of self-interested men. If that isn't an example of what we see going on today and that there's a myth to American exceptionalism, I don't know what it is. And you know, if you add to that, uh, there's a great quote by Louis Brandeis from the 1927 Supreme Court opinion on uh, Whitney versus California. And uh, Brandeis wrote, those who want our independence believe that fear breeds repression, repression breeds hate, and hate menaces stable government. Now, if we don't deal with our history, if we don't realize that, you know, as people, we're not exceptional, we're going to get into hate, menacing, stable government. So I would say we have an exceptional founding document. The Constitution for its time was incredible. 
And the Declaration of Independence is a soaring, aspirational, revolutionary proclamation of hope and humanity. It was audacious and imperfect. But as people, we aren't exceptional people. We're just people. And each generation of us is tested to live up to the aspirations in the Constitution and the Declaration and to improve them, do a better job of achieving them. Uh, that's our responsibility. So, you know, we have an exceptional opportunity to improve our country uh, because of our Constitution and the Declaration. But it's up to us to do it. And as long as we sort of wallow in, we are an exceptional people, we are an exceptional place, we're not doing that job. Right. And that the important lesson has, has been really underscored over these last four years has been that we're not immune. And, you know, it's been proven. And you do a great job in the book with laying out the 12 lessons. You use a history lesson very uh, succinctly, I guess, and, and, and you weave it into, into the lesson. And obviously, I'd love to go through all 12, but you get the book and you'll, you'll see the 12. But one of the things that should have been the, the main alarm bell um, from day one has been the attacks on the free press. And, right. you know, that's lesson four in the book. You know, I'd love to hear you talk about that for a bit. Yeah, you know, I, it's funny because uh, that's the one, you know, you write a book and then you kind of forget it <laughs> a little bit. And then you go back and reread it through all the editing process. And that's the one that really stuck with me. That and, and lesson 12, the surveillance society and total information awareness. But lesson four is called gagging the press, quashing dissent. And here you go. You're going to love this seditious libel, 1798. And it begins with the data from today, which is that 24% of Americans, all Americans, agree with limiting the freedoms of the press and the media. Now, authoritarians are much more likely to do that, but that's the, the 24% is all Americans. And this chapter talks about the Sedition Act of 1798. It was the first U.S. statute to criminalize free speech. And remember, the Bill of Rights was just passed by Congress seven years earlier. And the Sedition Act was enacted by the Federalists. They controlled the House and the Senate. And they then went on to pack the court, right? Remember how they packed the court sure. for 30 years, yeah. the Federalists? Mm -hmm. And it was designed to quash dissent and gag, uh, increasing opposition to their hegemony. And, you know, it was really the product of the deeply divided country. There's Adams and Hamilton on one side, Jefferson and Madison on the other, if you want to put in the, you know, a tag team match here. And the Sedition Act drawed on um, English legal tradition of criminalizing seditious libel. And you notice that uh, Trump has talked about this, too. And they made it an act. They made it a crime for any person to write, print, or utter, publish, Unless they are knowingly and willingly assisterating the writing, printing, uttering, or publishing of scandalous and malicious writings against the government, Congress, or the president. And speech was considered defamatory or contemptuous that excited the hatred of good people of the United States and stirred up sedition with the United States against government, Congress, or president. Under this standard, every pundit and every reporter on television and stuff for OAN and Fox uh, would be in jail, okay? <laughs> Questioning the Federalists and their government, governing majority 
under the Sedition Act became a crime. And you say, okay, well, what happened? 26 Americans were arrested for violating the Sedition Act. One was a congressman, Matthew Lyon, who was in Congress at the time, arrested. He ran for re-election from jail, one. And he was arrested for criticizing Adam's thirst for foolish adulation and selfish avarice. <laughs> but the person that I focus in on is Thomas Cooper. He was a newspaper editor. Jefferson later called him the greatest man in America. And he criticized the politics of President John Adams. Uh, was brought up in front of uh, a jury. The, the judge in the case was Samuel Chase. Uh, who was a Supreme Court member at the time, because uh, he was riding the circuit back then. And uh, Cooper was convicted by the Federalist jury, was a jury of Federalists. Uh, they listened to the evidence, went to the tavern, drank for an hour, and came back and convicted <laughs> him. And at trial, he testified this, which I think you'll love, uh, quote, I know that in England, this is Cooper, I know that in England the king can do no wrong, but I did not know till now that the president of the United States have the same attributes. Mm. This was 1798, seven years after the uh, Bill of Rights. Fortunately, there was a sunset provision in the Sedition Act. <laughs> it disappeared in 1801. But the use of the Sedition Act to quash dissent is really a cautionary tale of what's possible when political power is in check and run roughshod over the Constitution and the rule of law. And, you know, it, World War One, we say, saw the same thing. And it was uh, not the Federalists at that point. It was Wilson who, you know, gagged uh, the press. So it happens in history, and it's very, very, it, it's very, very dangerous. Another one that jumped out at me out of the 12 lessons was what you call uh, the ugly abyss of racism. And, you know, you weave... Uh, history in from the, the Japanese internment camps. And um, you, you really do do a great job of laying that out. And you then bring us to President Trump's zero tolerance policy on the southern border. Yeah, it is the, the parallels between the Japanese internment and what we're seeing today on the southern border, or potentially now there were not with Muslims yet, but there, there was a uh, some polling that talked about should Muslims be tracked? Should they, you know, have to wear special cards, have special identity cards that need to be produced at any time? And you find in the polling that people, authoritarians in particular, agree with that. And this ugly abyss of, of racism, the Japanese internment, I, I tell it through the eyes of George Takai, who, you know, I met on Star Trek. He was Commander Sulu. Sure. And he was a child living in California, uh, I think he was three or five years old, I don't remember the exact age, because of Roosevelt, the Democrat executive order. You know, in the end, no one is really directly responsible for uh, ordering the internment. Roosevelt had a little part to it. Congress had a part to it. The military uh, had a little part. They sort of spread it all around so no one would be uh, uh, directly liable for it. But Sakai was at home, uh, Two soldiers came up, knocked on the door, and his family had to clear out of their house uh, right away. And the soldiers, he describes it uh, as, you know, seeing they were bayonets and uh, forcing them out of the house. 
And uh, George Sakai and his family ended up in an internment camp like so many Americans, uh, Japanese Americans did. And it was fear of the enemy within, as uh, McCarthy would say, and the enemy within was Japanese because these were not Americans, they were Japanese. And I think what, you know, is critical about that lesson, uh, you know, the ugly abyss of racism is amazing how the racist racism was stirred up against or really activated against Japanese and turning them into another when uh, it didn't happen to other Germans in this country or Italians, it happened to Japanese. But I, I think what's wonderful about that story is its end, which is that we came to terms with that, that there was a reconciliation, there was a, a reparation and acknowledgement of that we had done as a country, the court never acknowledged it, or I think it finally has, but that as Americans, we mistreated Japanese, beyond mistreated, we dealt with them in an un-American way, and that we uh, sold out our values for fear. And the interesting thing about that story is the, was who was the man who signed uh, the Reparations Act and actually spoke at the ceremony where we acknowledged uh, that, and that was Ronald Reagan. Right. Yeah. That's and, right. Uh, you know, and if you go back in history, right after World War II, there were many Japanese Americans who, when they got out of the camp, they let out of the camp to go fight in the war. And that many of them died. And there's one who died saving his many men in his corps. And he was getting a, a Medal of Honor, I think, and uh, the governor of California was there to present it to his uh, sister, I believe it was. And there was a Hollywood star who was there also. And it was Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. in 1945. So when it comes mm-hmm. to, he was consistent on that issue. And you can go online and look it up, it, you know, look up the, the video. It brings you to tears. That's leadership. Yeah. And, and the, the quote that, you know, what he said, and I'm going to quote him here we admit a wrong. Here we reaffirm our commitment as a nation to equal justice under the law. Yes, that is, you can't, can you imagine that happening today? No. No, no you just can't. And there's no, I want to go back. There's another part of that quote. Uh, I think he began it with, we gather here today to right a great wrong. Yes. And, and he says this, blood that is soaked into the sands of a beach is all of one color. Mm. And that's in the 1945 event. And then he came back and said that in, the, in this event also. And he said, and yes, the ideal of liberty and justice for all, that is still the American way. I mean, it, to me, I, you know, I went back and looked at that footage and it really brought tears to my eyes. And it, it's over a loss, what we have lost. You know, there are a lot of things I didn't agree with Reagan on, but there was that decency and there was that commitment, basic commitment to many American values that just permeated how we acted. Right. Yep. 1988 seems like so long ago. Um, oh, it does. <laughs> um, so, you know, you let, let's talk about your let, let's talk about your uh, prescription for strengthening America. And, and you know, in the book, you give. 10 steps to strengthen America. And, you know, the one that, again, stood out to me 
was the need to recommit ourselves to the proposition that there are objective facts, right? And that, you know, that's, yep. that's important because if we all, if there is no set of, of objective facts, how do, how does the country make decisions? How do we, how do we make a learned and informed decision as a people? And I, I think that uh, that prescription is, is super important. H- how do you fix that? Well, they're facts, and now they're alternative facts, and there can't be. <laughs> right. We have to commit ourselves to science and truth and realize that disinformation does a disservice to democracy. And it's up to us as people because there are many news outlets that make money as purveyors of disinformation, conspiracy thinking, and uh, denigrating others. And we have to uh, move beyond that as a people. And so I, I think the first, uh, you know, there, let's try to boil it down to three things we need to do. It depends a lot. Five of them are Madison, which I think are really great in the book. But to keep the Republic from, from careening off the road into the gutter, we need to, to take some personal responsibility first. You know, the first thing is to realize that our fellow Americans, including the authoritarian neighbor, right, uh, or your authoritarian uncle. That's right. right. Uh, they are the enemy. You really the enemies here, and there are enemies of democracy are self-interested men and women, just like Madison said in Federalist 63, who exploit fear uh, to, to secure and expand their power. And the enemy of democracy then is fear and, and the men and women and the enablers with them who exploit it. So personally, we've got to stop othering each other. Uh, and that's what's really happening. We're, we're divided, right, into us versus them. And we can't have any more schoolyard labeling of one another as libtard or snowflake or deplorable. We've got to start dealing with other Americans as Americans and realize that we can't revel in the drawing of differences between us. There is no enemy within. And then institutionally, we need to rebuild faith in the institutions of government and democracy. Really, we have to demand our leaders are constrained by something I know you care deeply about, as I do, the rule of law and our fundamental constitutional principles. Mm -hmm. And we also re- got to require them to tell the truth. And if they don't, they need to pay a price for that. And that price is losing at the ballot box. They need, we need to take their power away from them. Uh, it's going to be we the people doing this. And then, you know, I think so much of this, and that's why I wrote this book, is that we, we've got to confront and make peace with our history. We cannot whitewash it. We cannot... Uh, say we're exceptional people, so we don't need to deal with it. We need to do what the founders wanted us to do, and that's improve upon our country every generation and make it closer to the ideals of the Declaration of Independence. Now, I'm proud to be an American, and I- I'm proud of my family services, my mom and dad in World War II to this country, and I think we have a lot to be proud of, but we have to also confront our history. And we have to deal with it the way that Ronald Reagan and uh, Congress did with Japanese internment. You know, and it goes to, I know you read as much as I do, probably more than I do, David, but, you know, Benjamin Carter has book, The Death of Democracy. And he said, what a nation believes about its past is at least as important as what the past actually was. Right. Trump's yeah. attempt 
to rewrite with the 1776 commission to stand aside and whitewash history is an attempt to change how we view our history. And in my book is an attempt to say, let's confront it, acknowledge it, reconcile it and move forward. Right. Um, and if we don't, it's just going to fester and hold our country back. You know, yeah. we all know the history of slavery and racism and, in this country, and we need to confront it. Mm-hmm. We just, we can't, we have to confront it or else we'll be held back. I agree 100%, and that's really, really insightful. I, I also think that we, as a nation, must understand that democracy is hard work. Yeah. And, and if we're not willing to put in that work, we're going to lose it. And I'm afraid that there, there are a lot of alarms right now that are going off that we're, we're at a risk of losing it. I think you're so right. This is such a dangerous time. This is, I've heard someone say this is not me as, a, as someone on uh, a pundit. He said this is the most dangerous time uh, since before the Civil War. It is. And we have to do the hard work of democracy. And it's not just, you know, sending a tweet. And it's not just responding on Facebook to social media. And it's not just taking in a lie and repeating it. Uh, That's not the hard work. The hard work is really learning what the facts are and then working with people we disagree with on some things, but we agree on the basic idea of America. I said earlier, we're not exceptional as a people, but as a nation in the world, we were exceptional. You know, I do a lot of work internationally and people hunger for American leadership. They really do. Mm. We've lost that. And that's a great loss for our country, but also for the world. Yeah, definitely well said. And I, I wish this was uh, an hour show here. I'd, I'd love to speak to you all day. Thank you so much. I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on. And more importantly, thank you for writing this book. On Fascism, 12 Lessons from American History. It is a manual that is crucial to keeping this democracy running. So, Matthew, thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much, David. I really enjoyed it. And and thanks for the great work you're doing. I love your podcast. Really, I found, discovered at least two new books just listening to your podcast. Oh, great. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. You too. I'm reminded of the story that we often hear about when Ben Franklin was exiting the Constitutional Convention and he was approached by a group of citizens asking him what sort of government did the delegates create? And his answer was simple, but very powerful. And his answer was, a republic if you can keep it. Democratic republics are not merely founded upon the consent of the people. They're also absolutely dependent upon the active and informed involvement of the people for the continued good health of the Republic. Democracy is hard work, and we have to be willing to put that work in. So let's get busy, let's get to work, and let's do what's necessary to keep our Republic. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on the trial brief.